The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, March 21st, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I've been watching the Neil Gorsuch hearings today. It was burning up Silver Fox Twitter, so I thought I'd give it a shot. Now, tomorrow, Neil Gorsuch could get hired as the main evening newscaster in TV markets 3 through 50. Maybe not 1 and 2, you know, Maurice Dubois, Mark Kriske. They've got their jobs sewn up. Also, I doubt Gorsuch would think that that was a promotion. But, and this will be the subject of my spiel, he certainly has the knowledge, the presence, the comportment, and a nearly mystical opacity into which no future opinion can possibly be discerned. But there is this weird phenomenon going on in America today. Maybe you've heard of it, internet commenters. I was watching the hearings on YouTube, just a a fast feed. I would have liked to support C-SPAN. That's still buffering as we speak. Anyway, on the side rail of the uh, Gorsuch hearings, these are the Gorsuch hearings, right? The Supreme Court hearing are all these comments. So Senator Amy Klobuchar is asking questions and we get this. Ma Coast says, bitch, Islam still stone women today. Pit bulls forevermore. Sexism innuendo bullshit. E power, president of their kitchen. George Kelly, Hillary should be in prison. Again, this is during a Supreme Court hearing. We're talking about issues like Chevron deference and Buckley v. Vallejo and a trespass to channels. Look, I understand there are nut jobs out. I, I'm sorry. I mean, impassioned citizens out there who think screaming insults under a screen name achieves anything. I didn't realize they'd be so eager to spend so much time inside the Senate Judiciary Chamber wading through legal issues. You know, you expect to find them at monster truck rallies or funny wiffle ball to the crotch clips. That's the area of YouTube you'd expect to see this level of discourse. But there, during Senator Sheldon Whitehouse's questioning, Mark Anthony, White House needs to shut the F up. We're kidding. My sentiments exactly. Glenn Gregory, March Madness. I don't know. I don't know if he was in the right chat. Robert Champion, Garland's a punk. Dan Wolf, White House is a moron. Is White House drunk? LOL. Mr. OCLW, White House is an embarrassment. Cassidy 109, why are liberal women so ugly? All right, then at one point... Sheldon Whitehouse mentions the Koch brothers and dark money, which sets off this. Jeff Rodriguez, Soros, Mamma Mia. Those billionaires include Soros, right? Dr. Sparkles, Soros, Zapruder 84. Like Soros, Robert Champion, Soros, Dr. Sparkles, S, Sparkles, O, Synth Ciroc. White House has some pretty good looking staff behind them. Sparkles, O, you get it? Dr. Sparkles is spelling Soros. All right, I think you get the point here. This was during the Supreme Court hearings. This wasn't during WWE SmackDown. I, like Judge Gorsuch, will not tell you what my thought process is or what my decisions will be in the future. I defer only to the rule of law. But you would perhaps be correct in assuming that I will be disabling live chat functionality on YouTube. Soros! On the show today, more inside the Gorsuch hearings, where we learn you could teach a man to fish for a day, or you could teach him an anecdote about fish, which he could rely on through his lifetime. But first, to that other hearing, the one yesterday, where it was announced that the FBI was investigating Donald Trump's ties to the Russians, but had found no evidence that Obama wiretapped Trump. Game changer, or drip, 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 or maybe just another example of a development that you or I think is big, but simply won't register with the people who aren't already outraged. We will talk to Ben Wittes of Lawfare up next.
James Comey testified before Congress yesterday. Here was how some of the media played it. The New York Times said James B. Comey had systemically demolished President Trump's arguments in a remarkable public takedown of a sitting president. The Hill said FBI Director James Comey is once again shaking Washington to its core, and the New Yorker called it a hearing the likes of which Washington hasn't seen in many a day, if indeed there has ever been anything like it. Was it that big? I know the revelation that the United States and Russia were being investigated by the FBI. I know that revelation is big, but didn't we know that already? Joining me now is Benjamin Wittes, editor-in-chief of Lawfare, senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings, and he is a co-chair of the Hoover Institution's working group on national security, technology, and law. Hello, Ben. Hey. Hi. Am I? I wasn't let down by the hearings. It was a confirmation of what I thought I knew due to some pretty good reporting. Yet I was a little surprised that much of the media uh, dealt with it as a bombshell as opposed to what I just said, a confirmation of what we pretty much already knew. What do you think? Well, I think it's a bit of both, honestly. So at some level, we all knew most of those things, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is a difference between knowing something because somebody said to a journalist that his third cousin's grandmother talked to the FBI and she said that three sources said that, right, you know, that there was an investigation. And the FBI director looking the committee in the eye and looking C-SPAN in the eye, which, by the way, is more important, Mm -hmm. and saying, I am investigating whether the group of people around Donald Trump have connections with Russian intelligence, and not merely that, but whether they colluded, collaborated, cooperated with activities with respect to the election. And there is something dramatic about the director of the FBI announcing that in public about a person who actually has the constitutional power to fire his ass at a moment's notice. So in a second, we're going to get to some inferences you made, and I think they were really interesting. But let's just talk about the actual text of what he said. Was there anything that he revealed that isn't in the category of confirming, but a new revelation? Or maybe maybe it was confirming, but confirming some thoughts that weren't widely reported just here and there. Was there anything really new? So, yeah, I think there's – well, I, I would put it in, in the category of stuff that is highly clarifying, not new exactly, but things that I wasn't sure about that now I know. One is the scope of the investigation. That is, the investigation includes those three elements I just described, including, by the way, one that white, the White House and Republicans consistently describe as a matter of investigative conclusion, right, that there was no collaboration or collusion. And what Comey actually described is that that's an investigative question that is being actively looked at. The second is, and this is a technical point, but it's a really important technical point, is that he clarified that this was a counterintelligence investigation. That difference is actually significant. And what it means is that the principal objective uh, and animating purpose of this investigation is not to prosecute a crime, but to figure out what a foreign intelligence actor, what a foreign uh, adversary actor is doing and figure out what the best way to counter slash respond slash 
uh, you know, do whatever you need to do to deal with that problem is. And that might or might not involve criminal prosecution of anybody. But, uh, you know, the principal objective is responding to uh, foreign activity of the intelligence variety against the United States. So those are two things that I think we really did learn. Right. But, and as you point out, the difference between a counterintelligence and a criminal investigation doesn't mean it can't be a criminal investigation. In fact, if the FBI is investigating it, it is de facto a criminal investigation. Well, it's not de facto a criminal investigation, but it inherently can lead to criminal charges because most activity or a lot of activity that is of counterintelligence interest is also potentially of criminal interest. Right. I will also say that the words that Comey chose to use there were chosen extremely carefully. Mm-hmm. And th- those words were, I'm sure, uh, pretty carefully discussed within the FBI and between the FBI and the Justice Department to figure out exactly what they can and can't say. And that means I think that there's real news value to thinking about exactly what he did and didn't say. And now this gets to the inference part where you made, you wrote a predictive column, a viewer's guide, and you laid out there are a couple of tacks that Comey could take. He could sort of go big and strong and condemn uh, the Trump administration, for instance, for either the Russian part or for concocting the Obama wiretap part. Or he could play his cards a little close to the vest. And you told us your readers that should he play it that way, uh, it would indicate that maybe he has a lot of uh, fire that he hasn't spent yet. Now, that's pretty much how he played it. So, I mean, fill us in on what your prediction is and why you said that that would be a notable thing to look for. Comey is, as people have recent evidence, more than capable of going up to Congress and absolutely dominating the news cycle by talking. Right. And the most famous recent example of that is when he went up in July and had a day long hearing about the Hillary Clinton email stuff. Uh, But there's a prior example of that, too, which has a, a quite different political valence, by the way, where, you know, he went up and blew the whistle on the famous John Ashcroft hospital room showdown over uh, the uh, warrantless wiretapping program at NSA. And so when when Jim Comey decides he's got nothing to lose and it's really important to him to just tell the truth, he is quite communicative mm-hmm. with Congress. And there's a real damn the torpedoes quality to that. Now, that's not what he did yesterday. He did not go up there and say, you know, what he could have said quite truthfully, which is that the president lied And that's despite the fact that by all accounts, he's quite angry about what the president did. Uh, And what he did instead was really quite gentle Mm vis-a-vis Trump. You know, he said that the FBI has developed no information that would support the tweets. Well, he knows perfectly well that the FBI didn't do these things. And he's framing it in a fashion that is the least antagonistic to Uh, the president that he can. And that suggests to me that he's not in damn the torpedoes mode. He's in uh, the mode of believing that there are serious investigative equities that the FBI needs to protect that are ongoing and that 
he needs to be there to protect them. And so he doesn't want to pick a fight with the president that's going to result in him having to resign or the president firing him or uh, some other major cause for obstruction that the president could throw in the way. And that suggests to me that the investigation is quite serious. Now, there's another piece of evidence that the investigation is quite serious, which is that he said so. And you just don't do that if there isn't something serious going on. And then finally, there's one other piece of evidence that there's something serious going on, which is that beyond confirming the existence of the investigation, he said almost nothing. That is exactly the reticence that I was referring to in the piece that you describe that suggests to me this is not an investigation he wants to talk about at all. Him saying it shows how serious it is. But can't we look back to the Hillary Clinton investigation where he confirmed it and yet nothing came of it? And question how perhaps nothing will come of it because a similar thing happened with Hillary. With the Hillary Clinton investigation, he talked about it when it was done. And when it was done, he talked about it in a very communicative fashion that a lot of people had a problem with. But he didn't do it in the middle of the investigation. What he did was when the investigation was done or when he thought it was done, he delivered a set of investigative findings. Could nothing come of this? Absolutely nothing could come of this. And, you know, to say that there's a significant or serious investigation is not to say that the investigation uh, bears fruit in a criminal context. And I don't think you should read into this that there is an impending sort of Damocles over the president's neck and that he's going to be sort of frog-marched to jail next week. I think what you should read into it is that there is an investigation that is substantial and serious enough that the Justice Department and the FBI made a decision to disclose it to Congress uh, that has no timetable for resolution. And the FBI director was actually volunteered that information, that there was no timetable and he wouldn't give one. And that means that there's going to be investigative activity that Congress is going to be itching to find out about for the foreseeable future. And that's extremely bad news for Donald Trump, even if it doesn't lead anywhere ultimately. Okay. I just want to put a couple things on the table. One is, yes, when the Hillary Clinton investigation was done, he gave his full report. But then he talked about reopening the report when the Anthony Weiner part of it came out. Is that something to think about? Yeah. So look, at the time that he went out and talked to Congress about it, he certainly did not imagine that they were going to be taking additional investigative steps. And he talked about it as a completed investigation. And the fact that it was completed was the reason he was willing to talk about it. Now, there were subsequent events that caused him to have to revisit that. But I don't think he ever, you know, knowingly went up to Congress and had a sort of robust, full conversation about an investigation he understood to be uh, ongoing. Okay, I understand there might be no criminal charges, but absent criminal charges, what makes it a bombshell? If he eventually comes out with a conclusion that said someone 
steps removed from the president, talked to someone steps removed from Vladimir Putin, you know, some cutout, talked to someone who was listed as a campaign advisor, like Carter Page, but the president says he never knew him. Why does that move the needle at all for the 43% or whatever Americans who approve Trump and really just care about jobs, for the, you know, 40-something percent of Americans like you or I who just can't believe uh, what Trump is doing and don't need any more convincing? Why does, you know, no charges but a thorough investigation that raises some issues really, you know, how is that a bombshell? It may not be. The less you have in the way of investigative findings and the further that is from the president himself and the less criminal it looks, uh, you know, the less I think this will fundamentally change the conversation. On the other hand, you could easily imagine what starts as an acknowledgement of an investigation spinning out into first prosecution of some individual and then flipping of that individual and then the implication of certain other individuals and then prosecution in a fashion that gets tighter and tighter and tighter around the group of people that are, you know, immediately around the president. And that is a very big deal. And so I think you have to acknowledge that there's a range of possibility here and the range is very large. And yes, at the gentle margins, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's, you know, wind that blows over at, at the more extreme margins, you know, it's not. Yeah. Uh, last thing I want to talk about is uh, the counter narrative of the Republicans on the panel, but also Fox News, for instance, today is what we really should be talking about is the leakers. I have two quick questions about that. One is, is there any chance that the leakers will be gone after? Um, will that be a priority of the investigators? And the second thing is, without the leakers, would we even be having this hearing or this conversation? Okay, so I'm going to be careful about how I answer this because I actually don't want to say anything ever that would give aid and comfort to somebody who was leaking the substance of FISA intercepts, which I think is a horrible thing to do. Uh, that said, no, we would not be having this conversation, at least not in this form, if somebody hadn't done that thing. I do not begrudge the Republican members' anger about the leak of the Flynn wiretap. And I suspect that uh, the FBI and NSA will take it very seriously, uh, particularly, I mean, the NSA doesn't do criminal investigations, um, but I suspect the FBI will have a leak investigation. And my only problem with what the Republicans did with respect to leaks is that that seemed to be the only thing they were interested in. And in the hierarchy of problems that are before the House Intelligence Committee right now, uh, the leaks are it's certainly not, it is certainly on the list, but it is not to me the highest point on the list. And I think to listen to uh, Devin Nunez or, or Trey Gowdy or some of the other, you know, more senior Republicans on that, you'd think that the only problem was that General Flynn had had a you know, FISA wiretap disclosed rather than that there were some very peculiar contacts and discussions and interactions between him and a bunch of people in the Russian orbit who, you know, that these wiretaps might have picked up in the first place. Benjamin Wittes is editor-in-chief of Lawfare, senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, and he's a co-host and co-panelist on the Lawfare podcast. There's an emergency podcast out today, isn't there? 
There's an emergency podcast out today. And by the way, uh, this week's podcast is one Adam Schiff giving what was really a remarkable speech today at the Brookings Institution that that I and my, my colleague Susan Hennessy hosted. All right. Thanks. We'll listen for that. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. And now the spiel. When a learned federal judge appears before an elite committee within the world's most deliberative body, you are sure that erudition will be in the air. Today, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, silvery like Judge Gorsuch, but a silver in retreat like the precious metals market during the time of William Jennings Bryan. Cornyn made clear where he stood on the issue of federal agencies having undue power over policy. Bureaucrats. Have the, have the latitude to interpretate their own legal authorities if the Congress is ambiguous and their interpretation is deemed reasonable. Hmm, well, that's open to interpretation. But the senator's statement about the status of religious liberty is not. Well, just as one, uh, one citizen uh, to another, let me tell you, I think it's a morass. As Will I Am once said of Fergie, inside them jeans. Then there was Idaho Senator Mike Crapo on his ideals of what a judge should embody. Others regard the role of a judge as a final arbiter of justice, clothed in those dark black robes. Though some would say they should also be an interpreter of law. So look, I think one reason why I was so attuned to the discordant words and phrases of some members of the committee was that the person who was in the spotlight, Neil Gorsuch, was just so smooth. He did not fall into any legal traps. He did not commit himself to any position he'd regret. He expertly and convincingly batted whatever criticisms were specific to him. For instance, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois quoted one of Gorsuch's former students. Uh, It was described as a gender-targeted discussion. This was a discussion in one of his law classes. A gender-targeted discussions where students were asked if they knew of any woman who took maternity benefits but then left work after having the baby. I'll now play a large chunk of Judge Gorsuch's answers. We will pick it up when he's describing using a textbook in his legal ethics class, and that textbook asks a question. The problem is this. Suppose an older partner woman at the firm that you're interviewing at asks you if you intend to become pregnant soon. And Senator, I do ask for a show of hands, not about the question you asked, but about the following question. And I ask it of everybody. How many of you have had questions like this asked of you in the employment environment? An inappropriate question about your family planning. And I am shocked every year, Senator, how many young women raise their hand. It's disturbing to me. Perhaps you get a sense from that answer of the judge's composure and comportment. At other times, he spun anecdotes about his upbringing, his time on the bench, or his time clerking for Supreme Court Justice Byron Wizard White. The part of the reason why I'm a judge is because of my experience as a law clerk, a shared experience with the same fellow your, your dad clerked for, and Byron White, and we used to race writing opinions. And this is the humility of maybe the smartest lawyer I knew. I'm talking about Rhodes Scholar, first in class from Yale type stuff. And he'd say, first one done with the draft wins. What does it mean to win? Drafting an opinion. That wasn't real clear to me, but he was a pretty competitive guy. 
And what it meant was whoever got the first draft done, the other one went in the bin and we worked off the draft of the guy who won. I never won. And he could only type with these big paws, these big hands, thick, pulling up sugar beets. And uh, so he'd hunt and pack and he could still beat me. Gorsuch used his time to carefully and repeatedly spell out the differences between a judge and a politician. Not for me to make the law, for you guys to make the law. But he did so in a manner and with an affect that would have made most of the politicians on the Senate panel envious. Now, he wasn't perfect. For instance, there was this part where he evoked the late writer David Foster Wallace. We're kind of like David Foster Wallace's fish. He wrote about a fish swimming in an aquarium. And it spends so much time in water and is so surrounded by it. The fish doesn't even realize it's in water. Well, that's an interpretation of the fish anecdote that suits one's purposes. David Foster Wallace brought it up at a commencement ceremony, and he actually conveyed it as a joke. It went this way. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? That's much punchier, isn't it? Then David Foster Wallace went on to self-denigrate, saying, hey, I'm not going to play the role of the wise older fish, speaking to a group of guppies just graduating from school. Also, I think Gorsuch bent the point a bit to suit his agenda. The point isn't that, hey, we might nitpick water, but water's pretty great, isn't it? It's more like that we don't notice what we've become habituated to. I mean, Let's look at it this way. Gorsuch was saying we do have the best laws and sometimes we take them for granted. But there are societies with laws different from our own. Maybe some of those societies have better laws. Maybe, maybe not. But there aren't any aquariums with a better liquid for living in than water if you're a fish. In fact, for most of human history, people have lived in civilizations with no laws or worse laws than we have now. But for none of Piscine history... Was there a long waterless stretch or even a stretch where fish got by on something wet, just not water? Uh, Judge Gorsuch, do you think plankton v. krill was decided correctly? I, you know, I really couldn't say. But surely, Judge, you've thought about algae versus store-bought flakes. Not in the specific case, just in general. Sorry, Senator, that's just not my job. Let's acknowledge the fact that Republicans blocked the nomination of another worthy Supreme Court appointee, Merrick Garland. The principle there is that the president should have the right to nominate Supreme Court justices. But if that's the principle, it's the principle, even for an unprincipled president like Donald Trump. Of all of Trump's nominees to any position, from watching these hearings, I got the impression that Neil Gorsuch is the most qualified and reasonable. He'll give a lot of opinions and decide a lot of cases in a way that I disagree with or I wouldn't like to have been decided that way. But if there is some ideal version of the Supreme Court, I don't think the ideal is that it just be stocked with justices who agree with my interpretation of the law or even who would craft a society that I think is best. I think the ideal Supreme Court would in some way reflect the ideological makeup of this country. So a Supreme Court with justices like Roberts, Kennedy, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, Merrick Garland, that would be a fine Supreme Court by me. Yes, I know, that's only seven. We need another two. But what am I, John Marshall over here? I got to decide everything? I'm an unelected podcast host. I shouldn't be allowed to legislate from the bench. 
And that's it for today's show. Two Gist producers, Mary Wilson and Chris Berube, are talking among themselves when executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, swims by. Hey, you guys do a great job working with a thoughtful and considerate boss and Mike Pasca, says Steve. What's water, say the producers, totally not understanding the joke or bypassing an awkward workplace moment. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. You might know him best as Dr. Sparkles. The Gist. Soros! Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.